It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. If we were going to theme the first two months of 2022 legislatively, it would definitely be all about maps. And this week seems like we're at redistricting 2.0. That's right. Maybe the second time is the charm. Yeah, I think it is going to be the charm because some deals were made this week between the Democrats and Republicans on what these maps would look like. A deal on the House side, that is correct. Last week, we talked about Senator Berger and Senator Minority Leader Dan Blue putting out a press release saying they were working together on the Senate maps. Well, those negotiations fell apart. And Senator Blue released a statement. He released some tweets saying that he could not work with the Republicans, that he felt that they did not have a compromise in mind. Now, last week, we heard from the House side, hey, we're not working together. We are too far apart. And then this week on the House side, there was a deal. And the House map, the new proposed House map, passed 115 to 5. The Senate's map of their own seats passed along party lines. So there are three separate maps that are going back to the trial court and for these special masters to help the court decide what they're going to accept. And those special masters are Bob Edmonds, Bob Orr, and Tom Ross. So we have a Republican, a Democrat, and an unaffiliated. They could accept any version of one map, two maps, or all three maps, or they could reject all maps. It is not an all or nothing sort of game. There has been a lot of talk inside the General Assembly this week on why Democrats need to have brokered a redistricting deal with Republican map drawers. The Senate Democrats didn't strike a deal, and it may have long-term negative consequences for them. If that map is thrown out by the courts, the maps that are drawn by the court are for this election only, which means after this election next year, the Senate and the House would come back and draw new maps. And why would that be a problem? Because we're thinking the Supreme Court is going to go at least 4-3 Republican. Right now, it's 4-3 Democrat. So, Sky, let me just bottom line this. The House maps look like, because of the bipartisan vote and the deal that the House made, those maps are approved. They're likely to get approved by the special masters which means they're locked in until 2032, which is the next time they're supposed to come back and draw legislative districts. But we could have a scenario where the Senate maps, because there was no deal, we could be back here next year with the Senate redrawing their maps while the House maps would, like I said, be locked in. You've heard from tons of analysts that this year... Democrats are going to have a tough year. And from all accounts, it was looking like, hey, there's going to be a supermajority. And folks are saying now with that deal made in the House that there are more competitive districts. So while a supermajority is less likely, it's not unlikely, but it is less likely with this map than it was with the previous map. 
Let's talk about the congressional maps that were approved. After seeing lots of different congressional maps and committee on the floor, on social media, legislators finally approved maps that have Democrats faring better than the first set of maps we saw back in December. So folks are saying that this is a 644 map, and that would be six Republicans, four Democrats, and four swing districts. I see. I think the big news, I don't know if it's big news, it's just kind of something we like to talk about is what's happened to Madison Cawthorn, the freshman congressman. He was going to that new district that was drawn for Speaker Moore. What's going to happen? It looks like, and I can't speak for Congressman Cawthorn because no one knows what he's going to be doing, but it looks like he's going back to his old district. And I heard this, that Senator Chuck Edwards, he is in it and staying in it. We saw a post that Senator Edwards made this past weekend. He was up in Washington, D.C. I'm sure he was not up there to be a tourist. All accounts would be that he's up there to talk to his consulting team. This will be an interesting race between Senator Chuck Edwards of the General Assembly and Congressman Cawthorn. I think we talked about this last week, but we are on a tight timeline for these maps moving forward. What was really interesting is that the full court opinion about the case did not come out until Monday evening. And the maps have to be submitted by tomorrow, Friday, when you're maybe listening to this by 5 p.m. And the parties in the case only have until Monday at 5 p.m. to respond to those maps. So all of those lawyers, I'm sure, are charging top dollar to work all weekend. (laughs) If any of the parties are going to appeal those maps, an emergency appeal has to be submitted by Wednesday of next week. And that's February 23rd. And when does candidate filing start, you might ask? 8 a.m. on February 24th. So another situation, maybe, where we have candidates standing in line like they did back in December. Mm -hmm. And they're filing for like four hours and then the courts make this order. This is going to be interesting to see what next week looks like. We do expect next week to have some action over at the General Assembly. We expect that budget technical corrections bill to be moving through the chambers. I don't know what else they might be taking up, but we do expect that next week. With all of this news flying around the General Assembly this week, we did manage to spend some time with John Hood, one of the founders of the John Locke Foundation, a fascinating political figure in North Carolina politics. We talked about his work, the founding of the John Locke Foundation, his career, and even a little treat about John's love of tap dancing. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. John Hood, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. To start us off, tell us about who you are, what you do, what is your role in North Carolina politics? Well, my current role um, or roles Mm -hmm. involve, uh, I guess, three things. 
The first is, and my day job, is as president of the John William Pope Foundation. That's a grant-making foundation. So uh, if you listeners may be familiar with the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation or the Duke Endowment, uh, the Ford Foundation, that's what this is. This is a grant-making entity. So we support a variety of different in institutions, nonprofits in North Carolina and beyond. Literally, the Pope Foundation funds the opera company, the ballet company, soup kitchens, university centers, and public policy organizations. So some of my time is spent working on our public policy grant making, which is the largest share of our annual giving. Uh, I've been there since 2015. Before that, I was the president of, and, and chairman of the John Locke Foundation for a very long time, and I know we're going to talk about that, but that was my, my previous role. Now, some of the work that I did even before the John Locke Foundation when I was a reporter and columnist back in the 80s and then through the Locke years, I still do some of that today. So I still write a, a twice-a-week column that runs in a, several dozen newspapers in North Carolina, and I make speeches and I do media appearances on occasion. Off and on for about 25 years, I was on television on three different programs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, first on public television, then on commercial television, then on public television again. Um, so I did a lot of that sort of thing, and I do some of that now. So that would be my second role. The third role is in the area of leadership development. The E.A. Morris Fellowship is a program of the John Locke Foundation, and it's an annual training program. We take 12 to 20 people at a time. We put them through a series of retreats and exercises and projects to develop their leadership capacity. I'm also chairman and, and a faculty member of the North Carolina Institute of Political Leadership, which I know y'all are very much aware of and involved in. Its purpose is to prepare, again, something like 12 to 18 fellows at a time each semester, uh, prepare them to become involved in politics directly, either running for office and serving in an elective office or perhaps serving in an appointive office. And then a third one is the North Carolina Leadership Forum. That's not a training program like the first two. That's a convening of current leaders across North Carolina. It's based at Duke University. Every year we bring in about three dozen leaders from across the state, different ideologies, different kinds of roles. The idea there is to delve deeply into a particular issue every year. This year happens to be healthcare access. But the primary purpose isn't to delve into the issue. It's to build connections and social capital among these leaders who may or may not really know very much about each other. Mm -hmm. This includes, for example, members of the General Assembly mm -hmm. who sometimes really get to know each other truly for the first time when they're in the leadership forum, mm -hmm. not when they are serving together in the General Assembly. I give money away, <laughs> I freely express my opinions, and I work with leaders. It's like you had that rehearsed. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Actually, I've never really described myself in quite those terms before, but yeah. I was on television for a long time, yeah. so I can, I can sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Take us back to 1989, and you are a part of the founding of the John Locke Foundation, which is a conservative think tank here in Raleigh. I had uh, graduated from college uh, a year earlier and had gone up to Washington to take a job at the New Republic. So I was a, a reporter researcher at the New Republic. I worked for a couple of senior editors there who were also TV personalities this is where I got interested in, in television. Fred Barnes yeah. and Morton Kondracki. Yeah. They were on a show called the McLaughlin Group 
And so I got to staff the McLaughlin. I basically prepped two of the panelists for McLaughlin. Every week I would go to the studio and I would see how they shot the show and I would write up you know, talking points and all that sort of thing. And I would also help them with their reporting for the magazine articles. Uh, I had been, even during college, I had worked as a newspaper uh, and magazine reporter. I was very interested in uh, either some kind of magazine or journal, sort of like National Review or the New Republic, but devoted to North Carolina politics. And I was also interested in broadcasting. Okay. So got along the way there, I was working in Washington. I have an identical twin brother. He was in law school at the time. And he was one of the first program officers for the John William Pope Foundation. I see. Which had been started in 1986. Art Pope, who was, the, um, who was at that time serving in the General Assembly, yeah. but also had come back to work uh, at the family business of Variety Wholesalers and was helping his father, John Pope, the namesake of the foundation, with the foundation giving, which was then very small. It was just starting up. He was interested, uh, Art Pope, I mean, in uh, policy research. He was in the legislature. Yeah. He was consuming it and thinking, you know, we need other points of view. Right. And he's a Republican elected from Wake County. He and Skip Stam were the first Republicans elected to the General Assembly from Wake County. That was in 1988. I didn't realize that. And they and many others in the legislature and more broadly uh, believed that North Carolina politics was becoming more competitive and that we needed alternative sources of information. They were guided in part by thinking about how think tanks and similar entities played a role in Washington. And I was thinking about that too. I spent time there. I had worked briefly at a think tank in California called the Reason Foundation that publishes Reason Magazine. I did an internship there. So we were all thinking along similar lines, except I was thinking more in terms of we need to publish and we need to broadcast. And Art was thinking in terms of we need to publish papers and studies and mm -hmm. briefing papers and do things to provide policymakers with information different points of view, mm -hmm. a concert, more free market conservative idea. There was also a fellow named Mark Rotterman, and Mark uh, had done political consulting, and what he was interested in was an event series. So we have, let's do a think tank. Let's do an event series. Mm -hmm. Let's publish and broadcast. Mm -hmm. So Mark Rotterman was hired as the president of the John Locke Foundation. I was hired as the vice president and uh, Art was chairman of the board. So then we went out and started finding other donors, the Broyhill uh, family and, and a number of other donors out there. Ed Morris, who was the head of Bluebell Wrangler Jeans, okay. uh, was a seed donor. There were several others. So we started the Locke Foundation, actually opened in, in early 1990. And uh, remember at this time, it was a overwhelmingly Democratic legislature, but yeah. there was a Republican governor. That's right. Jim Martin, That's whose right. biography I wrote Many, many years later, yeah. 25 years later. Uh, and so the Mart administration also wanted like alternative sources of information. In 1991, we created Carolina Journal, right. which is still published today. It was originally a, a glossy magazine, but later I turned it into a, a, a sort of newspaper, a tabloid-sized newspaper. We were involved in broadcasting. I went on a show called North Carolina This Week. Sometime later after that show went away, uh, I got together with uh, a friend, John, Tom Campbell, who mm -hmm. worked in state government and had been a broadcaster. Later on, when the internet came along, we sort of dove pretty deeply into blogs and having websites and things like that. The General Assembly would not go Republican for two more decades. 
the the house went republican in 1994 that's right that's uh, right. that lasted for four years and then went away the senate had never gone republican right. in modern times until 2010 um, now that having been said it's important to, to think about uh, some of your listeners will remember this and some of them may not but in the 90s while the Democrats were usually in charge of the General Assembly, certainly always in the Senate and mostly in the House, the Democrats at that time were more ideologically diverse. Mm -hmm. So we had Democrats on our board. We had Democrats very much interested in what we had to say. That's not really the flavor we have anymore. <laughs> right, that's right. But because the parties have ideologically sorted. Then 2010 happened. Mm -hmm. And 2010 really happened, like yeah. big time. Yeah. We went from... Sometimes having our ideas acted on by Democratic governors or Democratic legislators, that did happen sometimes. And it's important for people to engage those who they might not agree with on everything, but they might have something right. that, the, that the policymaker wants to know about. But after that, we had a lot more of our agenda that, of course, began to become enacted. And the Locke Foundation pivoted a bit more towards um, what's the best way to do this policy, not whether you should do this policy tax reform, educational reform, uh, regulatory reform. Once you had conservatives in charge because the Republicans had taken control of the General Assembly, then you had debates among them right. about how, do you, how best do you perceive these ideas. Let's talk about how did you become a conservative? I grew up in Mecklenburg County. My, my parents uh, were, were pretty conservative people. They were both public school educators. My mother was an art teacher. My father was a school principal and worked in administration. He was involved after the Swan decision, the desegregation mm -hmm. decision. Uh, he, he had been working as an assistant principal at a high school. So uh, he went into the central office and helped to develop the implementation of desegregation. And then he became a school principal at what had been a traditionally black school in downtown Charlotte. So uh, educator family but conservative, they both favored uh, school choice from an er early on. Right? They did. And there were a lot of books on our shelves. There were books on our shelves. There were five kids in my family, my identical twin brother. Um, I have two other brothers. I have a sister. And there were books on our shelves. There were thousands of books because my parents could not stand to see books thrown away. And if you're working at a school, what happens every so often is the libraries will replenish their stock and they will throw away all the old books. Well, this was probably not entirely kosher, but my parents didn't see those books thrown in the dumpster. They just put them in their, you know, in the station wagon or whatever, in the back of the truck and brought them home. And we had essentially an entire school library to read. And I read and read and read. I read books for kids, book for teens, book for adults. And uh, my brother and I both were oriented towards politics and philosophy and all that from an early age. Though, were your parents active? Not really. No, they were not actively. I mean, they, they took National Review, which I read. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. I devoured every time it showed up. Uh, they, there were some other publications. They took two newspapers, the Charlotte Observer and the Charlotte News. I devoured them. I, from When I was a teenager, I was convinced that I either wanted to be Fred Astaire or William F. Buckley. Okay. I was a dancer. I, I yeah. performed. Uh, my brother and I were a song and dance team. I taught dancing. I still teach dancing. Uh, so I was thinking about a performing arts career, and Fred Astaire was my hero. Or I wanted to write a newspaper column and be on television like William F. Buckley. So I went off to college at Chapel Hill, my brother and I did, mainly because it's the one place my mom said we couldn't go. Yeah. Okay. So it's the only school we applied to because we're 
sort of natural contrarians. Okay. And why so, didn't she want you to go too too liberal? Yeah. Or, okay. All right. Yeah. And too just just too weird. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like weird. Yeah. So anyway, we went off to Chapel Hill. Uh, pretty quickly disabused myself of the notion that I should go into the performing arts because there was no money in it. So I went into journalism, okay. which I'm not sure was a rational decision from a financial perspective, but it, it's what I did. <laughs> uh, really got pretty active working while I was in college. I paid a lot more attention to can I get a reporting gig or can I write, can I cover this school board meeting on a Tuesday night even though I had class? Right. I skipped class. Okay, did you? Lot. Oh, yes. wow. So, because I wanted to, to write and, and learn my trade that way. Tell us about the dancing. I see you, you know, on television. I read your column. I'm aware of all the great things you've done in North Carolina politics. But then I see this other side of you. Where, where, what do you do with that? Where, where does this come from? Well, you act like there's some inconsistency between <laughs> being a, a tap dancer and tap dancing around the issues. Okay. All right. Uh, well, I mean, again, I started dancing when I was three uh-huh. and uh, very much enjoyed it. Uh, not only do you learn a lot of just basic things about music and yeah. rhythm, and I, I teach when I teach young people, I talk to them all the time. A lot of my students are already dancers. They're taking ballet or jazz or something like that, and they take tap because it's expected to be well-rounded. And my point to them is the one thing about tap that is different from all other forms of dance uh, is that you aren't just dancing, you're also playing an instrument. That's right. You're playing the floor, you're playing your taps, your taps are your instrument, you're a drummer, you're drumming on the floor. So it's a lot about rhythm, you're going to learn a lot more about rhythm and syncopation as a tap dancer than, by, than with any other kind of dancing. Um, and so I went for a long time without doing a whole lot with it. My twin brother performed a lot in, on stage, I didn't do as much of that. But during the, I think we started this around 92, I had some of my artsy friends and I uh, started the teen arts program. We started it at Theater in the Park in Raleigh, and that was a summer camp. We would bring in uh, teenagers for about a month during the summer, teach them an original musical that we wrote for them, and then put it on stage. Through that, um, I started to think, you know, maybe I should also get more exercise uh, I had two young children, two boys. I put them in, in uh, tap and other dance and went to this dance studio with them and hung out, just hung out and did nothing, just watched and read books. But it came out later that uh, I was a dancer myself, and so I now teach at that dance studio. Wow. I teach teens and tweens um, tap dancing, and then I teach graduate students at Duke University public policy. I haven't decided which of these two groups is more mature, um, but neither neither shares my maturity level, which honestly is like about five. Oh, come on. <laughs> so let's go back to 2012. Uh, the General Assembly has flipped from Democrat to Republican, and one of the first major pieces of legislation that the General Assembly passed was to put on the ballot the Amendment 1 constitutional amendment dealing with same-sex marriage. And John, in 2012, I believe it was the spring, you, as one of the most high-profile conservatives in the state, came out against Amendment 1. I had lots of correspondence uh, (laughs) after that. Um, It wasn't any big departure. I mean, honestly, as, I, as much as I can recall, the very first column I ever wrote when I was still in college and I had begun writing a column for a local newspaper in Nash County, okay. uh, the column that 
now, many years later, I still write, including in that newspaper, was about gay rights. I mean, I wrote about that the very first one. Because at that time, North Carolina and, and other states had sodomy laws, laws mm-hmm. that, that criminalized sodomy. And I argued, as a conservative, first of all, you shouldn't have laws that govern that kind of behavior among consenting adults. But also, and in particular related to sodomy statutes in North Carolina, it was being used abusively. It's not as if the law was being enforced. It was only enforced in selective cases because they couldn't prove anything else. So I've always believed that the uh, that state law, federal law, ought to be neutral with regard to how people arrange their private affairs. And there were a number of practical problems that same-sex couples had. There were a variety of solutions. Okay, you you didn't have to favor just expanding the definition of marriage to include same-sex couples. So I had argued that all along we ought to figure out a way to accommodate the practical needs of same-sex couples and maybe others other than just having marriage or nothing. Mm-hmm. And so when the marriage amendment came along, um, I argued that, again, we ought to, as a state, have uh, ways of accommodating and facilitating people to make a domestic arrangements that are best for, for what they want and that make it easier to adjudicate disputes and handle child custody matters and rental contracts, access to uh, the hospital if, you're, mm-hmm. if your same-sex spouse is ill. And so I, I, it wasn't a big like ideological crusade on my part, but it's something I had long believed. We had differences of opinion within the Locke Foundation about the marriage amendment. Uh, Locke Foundation tended to focus on fiscal and economic and educational and that sort of issue, and not so much on same-sex uh, marriage or abortion, mm-hmm. uh, issues that many of my staff felt passionately about, as do I, but just that's something for another organization to work on. So I had not originally planned to make a big deal about I was going to vote against the amendment and say, if somebody asked you about it, I was always going to say what I think. I pretty rarely mm-hmm. <laughs> hold my views back. But the reason I became more pointed about it is, unfortunately, it was a mistake. It was a big mistake. I had a blogger who worked for me in Charlotte. She was a talk show host in Charlotte, Mm. and she wrote a piece about the uh, 2012 presidential election and about Barack Obama and his position on a number of issues, including things like same-sex marriage, which had changed. Remember, he was against it, then he became for it, and she was arguing it was for political purposes, and she went and found, I don't know what in the world possessed her to do this. She went on the Internet. She found some image of President Obama with a like a dog collar or some kind of collar around his neck and a bucket of chicken in mm. front of him mm. to illustrate her not ridiculous I didn't agree with it but not not really a ridiculous post but it was a very offensive image and I didn't see it for I don't know a day or two one friend of mine uh, one one progressive friend of mine saw it and said what are you doing and I freaked out and I you know immediately took it down and I let her go mm. But this became a national story. Mm. National people chasing me, you know, racist, homophobic, this and that and the other. So in the context of that, I explained, look, the John Locke Foundation is not against same-sex marriage. We're not for Amendment 1. We haven't taken a position. I'm against it. And then I explained my whole... So that's how it happened. So it's not that I was keeping it a secret, but it became a bigger deal because I was responding to this editorial mishap. Wow. I do remember all that playing out. It was now. a big, it was a big mess for yeah. a while. Yeah, it created tension, right? It did. Um, it, 
it wasn't, I, I wouldn't describe it as a firestorm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the firestorm was the initial yeah. uh, image and the, the, you know, I had to, of course, apologize for it. And I had to explain that it had not been sanctioned by anybody mm-hmm. in the organization. This was a freelancer. She's let, been let go. We disavow any kind of thought of, of I mean, so we, that's what spoke, uh, consumed most of my time for weeks afterwards, not mm-hmm. me being against Amendment 1. What happened later, Brian, is that the opponents of Amendment 1 started using my quotes in their advertising. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, they didn't ask me. Right. But I mean, I was a public figure. I had written about it. I couldn't say, how dare you accurately quote me? <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I got a little bit more pushback was later as the election actually happened. Of course, the amendment passed. But as I had argued at the time also, I never thought it would stick very long. I, I, it, it should have been obvious to everyone that this was not a tenable position. Yeah. And one of my arguments on it was simply, again, as a conservative, I'm very concerned about marriage. Marriage, stabilities of marriage... Uh, have a lot to do with social function or dysfunction. A lot of the problems that are that we think about, from poverty to educational deficiencies, homelessness, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, a lot of it is either the origins come from growing up in single-parent families or are accentuated, are made worse by that. My point was that the threat to marriage was not same-sex couples getting hitched, the threat to marriage was divorce. It was out-of-wedlock births. Naturally, marriage had been uh, suffering as an institution for decades, and there hadn't been same-sex marriage. So it was not possible for even just the prospect of same-sex marriage to be the cause of the problems we were seeing in marriage. I've been divorced and remarried. I know that it poses a lot of problems for children. My mother was born out of wedlock. Uh, she didn't really know who her father was. She, there were guesses. I didn't know who my grandfather was until he was long passed away. It ended up being the fellow lived across the road, but I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the experience that my mother had uh, as a growing up without a dad. So these are real problems. They continue to be real problems. All of that argument that I made from my perspective as a liberty-loving conser- American conservative was not shared by everybody else mm-hmm. who had similar starting points as, as I did. And that was okay. Recently, there's been a lot of change over at the John Locke Foundation and Civitas, which was its kind of sibling organization. There was a merger recently. What's going on over there? Can you kind of explain sure. how that's happening? Well, the John Locke Foundation predated Civitas by many years. Okay. Civitas was created to be more oriented towards the grassroots so uh, one way to think about it is the John Locke Foundation, the John Locke Foundation was created to have North Carolina, leaders of North Carolina, conservatives of North Carolina, talking to their government. And Civitas was created kind of with the megaphone aimed in the other direction. It was a, a Raleigh-based organization that was seeking to uh, inform and educate North Carolinians across the, the state some of whom are interested in politics, some of whom really aren't, and to try to give them opportunities to learn about free markets and limited government and the the attractions of freedom as a guiding principle of of government. So they had different emphases. Some years ago, when I left the organization, uh, the John Locke Foundation, um, and Civitas also had a transition, so there were new leaders that came in, and they began to talk, and they began to think, maybe we should at this point, there had always been confusion. I mean, I would get calls all the time, how come you said such and such? Why did you publish this? And it wasn't 
the John Locke Foundation, it was Civitas. Mm -hmm. And Civitas would get calls, can't you tell your president, John Hood, to shut up? You're right. And so uh, they decided to to initiate the idea of merging the two organizations. And, um, you know, it's like anything else, an enterprise like that has its has its rocky moments and its and its promising moments and they're still kind of working it all out but um, that that was the genesis of it is there a concern about the two cultures coming together and i always felt like civitas was ready to take the gloves off if they had to but john locke kind of was uh, above the fray there were some stylistic yeah. differences yeah. and um, you know you can still see them the, the main the way to think about this is that for the most part, at all think tanks, the individuals who are speaking or writing, that's them. Yeah. You know, Joe Coletti used to work at the Locke Foundation. He now works at the General Assembly in, in a new role. If Joe Coletti wrote something, that means the John Locke Foundation thinks X. Mm-hmm. Right. It was always best to think about it in terms of Joe Coletti, who works at the Locke Foundation, offers his views. Interesting. And that's an important distinction. I already alluded to an issue that really wasn't a, a core issue, uh, the same-sex marriage thing, but there were a number of other issues that came across, including education hmm. and stuff, where within the Locke Foundation when I was there, we had disagreements. Oh. And I didn't say, you, employee, will do what I, you will say what I tell you to say. I let them express their view, even if it was different from mine, and we had some differences of opinion. And similarly, there were differences between the Locke position on tax reform, for example, and the Civitas position on tax reform. They had two different plans. They were competing plans. Wow. And my view about this is I will work with anybody to do right. This is a Frederick Douglass point. <laughs> I work with anybody to do right. And uh, I won't work with anybody to do wrong. If I have enough in common with somebody to have similar goals and maybe even similar but not the same means we can work it out. Mm-hmm. We can decide, well, I, I'm gonna, I think my plan's better than your plan, but maybe we can meld the best parts of each and see what happens. If it doesn't work out the way we expect, we'll tweak it later. This is something that lots of political ideologues, and I count myself as an ideological person, philosophical guided person, a lot of times we sort of have this very abstract, I've got the solution, and it's been on my shelf for 20 years, and if you just take it off my shelf and you'd write it into the bill... <laughs> The truth is that almost every idea that any politically engaged person has, it's got something wrong with it. Yeah. And you don't know what that is until you try it, honestly. So what you have to be willing to do is not just take risks and build a consensus and, build, and, and write a good bill and get the bill passed. Then you have to sweat the details of implementation, and you have to be open to the possibility that it didn't work. It didn't work. And isn't that very hard to do? None of us wants to agree. We spent five years or 15 years or 50 years advocating something, and it didn't work the way we thought when we finally got what we wanted. It didn't quite work out. We've seen that recently in North Carolina government. We've seen both Democrats initiate initiatives. They were a big, big, giant deal about them. You you remember (laughs) in the 90s when there were lots of education reforms? You know, Brian, some of those didn't really pan out. They sounded good, right. but they didn't really work. And some of the Republican initiatives that they had on education or other things didn't really, at least initially, did not achieve the results that they expected. The way I evaluate policymakers today isn't just whether I agree with them or not or whether I think they're honest or they don't act like jerks. I mean, these are important things. 
But are they open to the possibility they might be wrong? So you have been working on civility issues for decades. If there was one thing that if you snapped your fingers today and it would change our political discourse or change something in politics, what would that one thing be? I think we have to reform the institution of the General Assembly. Hmm. Lots of other guests you've had have had similar notions. I frankly think we need to have strict session limits. Lots of states have one-month or two-month sessions. Since I spent a lot of my life going to conferences where think tankers or journalists from other states would, and I would explain that we don't have a limit, and they would be absolutely bamboozled. Mm -hmm. Now, not if they were from California or Michigan or somewhere where there's a full-time legislature. They would be shocked because I would tell them we have kind of like a full-time legislature, but not really because we don't pay them. Mm-hmm. And so then they would be flabbergasted. So basically, no one thinks our model makes any sense. We should either have a Virginia or Florida or Texas sort of a model. We have a brief session, and then maybe you need a special session every now and then, but you have a very clear limit. You start the ground running because you got six weeks. Okay, Think about how that would – y'all know a lot about the yeah. legislative process yeah. in North Carolina yeah. and how it's hurry up and wait. <laughs> yeah. If it was Texas or Florida or Virginia or one of these other places, you had to hit the ground running. Now, that doesn't mean you wouldn't be working off session, but you would not be in the state capitol working off session necessarily. So I think we need stre- uh, se- session limits so that we can have a somewhat different co- a composition of people in the, in the capitol. And then I think we, frankly, need to pay them more. Yeah. But the main way I want to re- increase their pay is to reduce their hours. There are many arguments against this. One of them was strengthens the hand of the governor. Governor's in Raleigh all the time. The legislature Mm -hmm. isn't. That may be true. I don't know that it makes a big difference anymore, but I I would grant that it might Mm -hmm. at some moment in a particular situation, but I I don't think that would be a huge effect. Another argument is it would strengthen the hand of lobbyists Mm -hmm. uh, and legislative staffers. That's a better argument against term limits, but I don't think it's a very good argument against session limits. Uh, actually, it would change very much the business that you guys are in and that others are in in ways that I think are mostly salutary, but you know, maybe in <laughs> a few cases not. Another argument against it is that we're just we're that's old-fashioned thinking. Of course, I hear that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're just stuck in the past, Hood, um, because we have a big, complex state now, and we can't govern like that. To which I say, we have a big, complex state. It's not as big as Texas. Yeah, it's not as big as Florida. And they have short sessions. And that's the way they do it. And I think we could probably do it. Uh, I think the burden of proof is actually on the people who want to defend the current system because it's weird. It is weird. We should either have a full-time legislature. I could could see some arguments for that Mm -hmm. because we'd pay people Mm -hmm. a a real salary. And we would have – it would be more honest to the public about what we've got. And people could plan ahead better if it was a full-time legislature. So we should either do that. I'm not in favor of it, but I could see a a, case. Or we should do what I want, which is a real part-time legislature. What we have right now is the worst of both worlds. I think that the main argument for this is uh, Parkinson's Law, which is work expands to fill the space allotted. Right. right? Yeah. So if you have no belt, like metaphorically. Of course. and you tend to have been eating too much lately and not getting enough <laughs> exercise. You just don't feel the constriction of the belt. Yeah. Right? But if you have a belt and you like keep it, yeah. you know, I really need to watch my weight. So what we've got to do here is have some kind of belt mm-hmm. on the belly 
of the beast yeah. of, of government and say, look, uh, you got 10 great ideas. Probably most of them are, are stupid <laughs> because they haven't been done already. And previous legislators weren't dumb. They were just as smart as you were, and they decided not to. So most of your great ideas probably aren't that great. Right. But a few of them might be. So instead of coming in every year thinking, I want to, my 10 great, have one. Yeah. Have two. Have two really high priorities and get them done and go home. Yeah. We'll be okay. North Carolinians, we will, we will live without your constant love. <laughs> <laughs> well, John Hood, we appreciate everything you are doing in North Carolina politics, all of your work to improve our politics. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. So I haven't known John Hood as long as you have, but he is an always present presence on Twitter and you see his perspective from the conservative side. It was really intriguing to hear from him about the history of the John Locke Foundation and their different branches and kind of how they come together and also how he thinks about his particular style of conservatism. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about John and the whole conservative infrastructure that was built 30 years ago. I've always admired the way the John Locke Foundation specifically has joyfully talked about their principles as if they're trying to persuade you to come to their side. I'm a little concerned about the merger between Civitas and John Locke because I think Civitas had a different culture, which is we're... This is who we are, and you're not us. I hope, I really sincerely hope that in this merger, it is successful. And I hope the John Locke Foundation culture uh, supersedes the Civitas culture. I know there's been some talk on staff like, oh, we both got to learn to come, you know, we got to be a little harder or we got to be a little softer. I hope that they really keep that optimism that John Locke is known for. Tweet of the week. This week's tweet of the week is not funny, it's just factual. And this week's tweet of the week is from Jordan Roberts over at the John Locke Foundation. And on Twitter, he's at Jordan Roberts NC. And his tweet says, you can sum up today's NCGA action with two words, maps and masks. And that is the truth. Yeah, probably could have just used it to sum up the entire week at the General Assembly. However, I will note that somebody responded and said, that's three words. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, thank you, Jordan, for the tweet of the week. This week has been a full week, and tomorrow you're getting out of town, going to do some relaxing and visiting a friend in Austin, Texas. Yes, so folks that remember a few years ago, we had an intern and he was my like family friend's child. And if you remember Jacob, Jacob Lowe, <laughs> he <laughs> was hands down the worst intern we've ever had. <laughs> he was, he was, he was a horrible, uh, horrible intern. 
but quite entertaining. And I should also add a very snazzy dresser. One of the things about him is that he was both overconfident and very scared at all times. At all times. So he wore, you know, uh, $2,000 ball suits and drove a BMW to the General Assembly. Jacob, at the time, he was a student at the University of Miami in Ohio. Very entertaining. So entertaining. One day I took a call and Brian was sitting outside of the speaker's office, kind of in that court. So if you close your eyes, you can imagine this. I took a call and went over into the 2200 court. And so Jacob was sitting with Brian and I came back and he is profusely sweating. And he's like, Sky, you would tell me if this is a lie, right? I'm like, what are you talking about, Jacob? He's all worked up. Brian had convinced him that there was a program at the General Assembly where all interns had to choose a bill or they were assigned a bill and they had to make up a rap about a bill. And then there would be a committee called and you would go into committee and get up at the back of the room (laughs) and do your rap and whichever rap was best, that bill was going to move forward to the next committee, which by the way, if this were to happen would be wildly fun. (laughs) It would be. And so Jacob spent the next few days writing a rap about a bill that passed this session, actually, the uh, prison shackling bill. Yeah. It was a terrible rap. (laughs) Absolutely terrible. And what's worse is that we made him perform it for everybody. (laughs) Including legislators. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody played along. We didn't have to prep anybody. Everyone was just like, yeah, that is what happens. Yeah. Finally, one day, a liaison over at DQ. Andy Miller. Andy Miller said, Jacob, you know there is no such thing as a rap contest at the General Assembly. (laughs) Oh, we had such a good time with Jacob. He kept saying, I think I might have to take a drink before I do this. We miss him, but you're heading down to Austin to visit the Lowe family. Yeah. You were friends going back to your college days. Yeah. yeah. So I actually took a class with the dad who was a professor, and then I ended up nannying for them when the boys were much younger and just stayed in touch with them. And the wife has passed. And so just have been really close with the family. Yeah. And Jacob's in LA right now. We've, we talk to him pretty frequently. Anytime we need some entertainment, we call him up. And what's weird is he's always available. Always available. And he, you know, he does a lot of website work for us. We, we appreciate Jacob. And we keep telling him he needs to come back because there are a lot of folks at the General Assembly who still ask about Jacob. He is uh, probably our most famous intern. Well, I hope you have fun in Austin. You're coming back Sunday? You're nodding yet? Because <laughs> okay. we don't pick up nods on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I hope you get some rest. Give my best to Alex Lowe and the Lowe family. Safe travels. Happy travels. What are you doing this weekend? I got a meeting in Raleigh on Saturday morning, so I'm just going to hang out here and just kind of really catch my breath. These starts and stops of session, they can be kind of tiring because you kind of get in this mode and then you're just there at the General Assembly, you're walking and you're doing all, checking all these boxes. Yeah, yesterday I said when we were in the car coming back to the office to have lunch, like it was so crazy. It was almost three o'clock 
and we hadn't eaten it when you're at the general assembly like time just just does not exist does it yeah thanks for listening to the do politics better podcast a weekly breakdown of ncga and nc poll news we appreciate you taking the time to download the episodes to subscribe and to comment if you have any comments for us you want to tell us about how great we are there's no (laughs) one who loves hearing about how great they are more than brian lewis Mm -hmm. i need it yeah (laughs) and folks that's how you remember to do politics better